Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. Thank you, Anne, for inviting me to be part of this uh, series of talks. You've asked us to reflect on the theme of the lecture series, uh, Architecture and Freedom, through the lens of our work, particularly to address, and I will quote you, to question whether creative freedom has any meaning for a discipline that is in many ways defined by the ultimate constraint of function. Uh, so I thought I would uh, use my uh, recent book style, which uh, addresses many of the issues that really relate to the question of freedom. Um, so let's first um, discuss briefly what we mean by freedom. If I could have my first slide, please. Freedom is one of the most fundamental political concepts over which philosophers have argued for centuries. Let me mention just a few. Hegel proposed that freedom is the negation of the given, that both the, nega both the negation of oneself and the natural and the social world, that to negate the given without ending in nothingness means to produce something that didn't exist. Therefore, we could say he was saying freedom is about creating. <coughs> Isaiah Berlin, another philosopher, proposed, that two, co proposed two concepts of freedom. Positive freedom or freedom of the will, of the individual, which, re which relies on the presence of the control of the individual to be self-determined and, and to act autonomously. And on the other hand, negative freedom or freedom of action of the individual when part of a collective, which relies on the absence of obstacles and constraints external to this individual, so to be free to do things differently. Sartre thought that freedom meant being constrained by nothing um, other than oneself. In his analysis, all actions are inherently free. Contradicting him, Merleau-Ponty thought that the free action is a matter of doing things differently, of intervening in the world in a way which makes a difference. A free action, therefore, if it is to make a difference, imposes limitations on other things or other actions. Therefore, the existence of freedom, according to him, is impossible if all actions are free. Philosophers of difference, such as Gilles Deleuze, uh, also think that freedom is about doing things differently. More recently, Zizek has told us that freedom is about looking at the presupposition of everything that uh, is around us, um, asking uh, what, what they are about. So it is clear that freedom has meant many different things um, in the history of political thought, which explains the existence of um, different written, written legal documents to define the formal politics of governments and publicly defined institutions and how they would guarantee the freedom of the individual, such as the Magna Carta, which King John was forced to sign in 1215, the Declaration of Rights of Man, approved by the National Assembly of France, the Albertine Statuto, introduced by Charles Albert in 1848, the Weimar Constitution, signed in August 1919, that gave right to vote to everyone above the age of 20, very advanced at the time, and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which advocates principles of dignity, liberty, equality, and brotherhood. Now, through these such written and legalized documents, uh, formal politics, or politics of parliaments and courts, define freedom, ensuring that everyone follows the same rule in order for society to function harmoniously. Such rules and regulations apply to the design of buildings, too relating, for example, to structure, to fire safety, safety ventilation, waste disposal, drainage, access uh, and use of buildings, 
electrical safety of buildings, and so on. But buildings are not wholly determined by such statutory laws, such as planning and building regulations, which means that the configuration of their spaces and elements uh, involves choices made by architects that embed the buildings with another kind of politics of an informal nature. We can call it micropolitics. Here, for instance, is the Smithsonian East Wing by IMP, where unlike on the inside of the museum, where people are discouraged from touching its precious artifacts, the exterior of the museum is designed with blade-like corners so, that are so inviting that visitors have partly worn their edges away. At the Guggenheim Museum, the handrail is designed following safety regulations, but it is also designed in a solid material, with the result that people who would otherwise pass quickly through its ramping galleries, as if they are walking through a supermarket, have the comfort or are given the comfort to stop and lean on it too as they look at the art. Conversely, handrails, again, that have to be uh, uh, designed according to safety regulations, can be designed in an open, transparent manner so that visitors that are prohibited from touching museum exhibits could view them from proximity. A window in a bedroom can be sized according to daylight regulations, but located asymmetrically along the wall so to provide the possibility of privacy for a bed. Glazing of hotel rooms must be specified in such a way that they comply with thermal comfort regulations, but they can also be designed full height to provide maximum exposure. Skylights in a train station must be designed to, comp uh, to comply with structural regulations, but they can also be designed with maximum sizes of glass to enable visual communication between the station and the street above. In the absence of such decisions made by architects, spaces in museums, houses, hotels, and train stations would be the same. As written regulations protect people's freedom only as far as ensuring that everyone follows the same rule within the process of constructing buildings. So the activity of architects, which involves making choices, inside that process creates spaces that are different to those that already exist and expand people's choices about what they're able to do and show. So back to Owen's question. Does creative freedom have any meaning for a discipline that is in many ways defined by the constraint of function? Just as we looked at the definition of freedom, let's look at the definition of function. We continue to use a definition that dates back to 20th century functionalism, defined as a predetermined set of utilitarian requirements that the building must follow or accommodate. If function is predetermined, it leaves no space for the architect's freedom to produce it. So by, uh, by function, I don't mean utility, I mean agency, which is in line with how it is defined in the field of mathematics, computer science, and biology. They define function as a transversal link or agent between known entities, such as numbers in mathematics, content in computer science, and uh, cells in biology. And when they, these are combined in a specific way, it produces something new, a formula in mathematics, a body of information uh, in computer science, an organ, obviously, in biology. The specific way that the known entities are combined embeds them, or the resulting thing, with new functions. Now, traditionally, this process of combining parts of a building, if we are to think of function in this way, is called style, which, as uh, we discussed earlier, would be constrained by many external uh, rules and factors. So we can say that style is the process of assembling buildings, and function is the agency given to the parts 
uh, as a consequence. Now, since the 1990s, there have been three pivotal changes, I think, in the way buildings are designed and experienced that force us to question how we define style, the act of putting the, the elements of a building together. Firstly, buildings today face many separate, distinct, uh, and irreconcilable challenges. They have led to different coefficients for buildings, such as space planning, security, rights of light, fire engineering, sustainability, engineering, facade engineering, health and safety, the list goes on, that are often beyond the expertise of the architect requiring specialist consultants. The design process has therefore changed from a solo activity into more of a team sport, in which the different coefficients are the product of separate concurrent lines of development that unfold at different speeds during the design process and introduce much unpredictability to it. Different building elements, uh, as a result, no matter how small or large, are consequently vital forces for the project, some crossing paths with one another and others not, whose ability to address specific concerns would be compromised if we would attempt to resolve them or reconcile them into a single unifying narrative. Now, secondly, with the advert of the internet, the way architectural ideas are made is different, since ideas are now shared and circulated worldwide with astonishing speed, often apprehended unconsciously. And architects are so steeped in each other's ideas and theoretical anxieties that certainty of what belongs to one person and what to another disintegrates. And thirdly, again, because of the internet, the way buildings are being used has changed since many of the everyday activities that we used to take part in buildings are now, such as shopping, reading a book, or watching a match, are now easily accessed online. But since these online activities are all reduced to the uniform context of a screen, independent of time and space, their experience has become very similar, whether you would be reading different books, or uh, buying an item of clothing, or watching a sports match. To complement the uniformity and the ubiquity of experiencing our everyday activities online, buildings have started to um, be designed to free people from the activity, or let's say from the deterministic approaches to architecture, to buildings in the 20th century. Uh, to do this, their unique spatial temporal natures have become the focus of their style to generate the possibility for diverse types of encounters between people and their everyday activities which the buildings would house. For example, libraries in the wake of e-books have changed from inward-looking <coughs> book repositories solely for taking out a book and, and reading it, consuming it, to open and differentiated spaces that encourage people to construct diverse reading and learning habits. Um, the new is always on the right, the old is on the left. Uh, while schools responding to the fact that information can be searched and accessed online have shifted from generic tutor-focused classrooms that favor the transmission and reception of standard knowledge to unique differentiated configurations that promote different kinds of experience-based learning. And department <coughs> stores responding to the rise of e-tailing have shifted from hermetic environments whose sole objective is the provision of goods to acting as places in which the physical experience of shopping is site-specific so that buying an item in one store is unlike buying it in, in any other. While offices, rather than declining in the face of email and conference calling, have changed from one-size-fits-all tailorist arrangements to create efficiency to include different types of interstitial spaces to promote knowledge exchange um, and uh, serendipitous encounters. 
Now, the agency of buildings, therefore, today, or their ability to act results in, in how their actual presence influences people's experience of their everyday activities. To think of style in relationship to people's everyday life encounters, rather than the understanding of the narrative underlying it, is to deviate it from the traditional uses of style, according to which the architect would unite buildings to represent a narrative, such as the personality of the architect or the author. Rafael Moneo has spoken of, of architect strategies by which he means paradigms, mechanisms, procedures, and formal devices that recur in the work of an architect and define their personal domain. Or to use style to unite buildings to represent their geographical location. For example, Bannister Fletcher, um, with his kind of evolving book, uh, proposed that the evolution of architecture was influenced by diverse factors that were ultimately rooted in nationality or to use their style to unite buildings to represent the time it belongs to, which Regal, Wolf Lynn, and Henry Russell Hitchcock described as Kunstwollen. Now, alternative to the representation of these external uh, narratives, style has been used to represent uh, an autonomous system that unites different parts of a building into a single formal order. We could call that an organic whole. Uh, Violo Leduc, uh, Botticher, Functionalism, Frank Lloyd Wright were proponents of this uh, approach to style. We, we need to question if these uses of style by architects um, do not inhibit the day-to-day -day freedom of the people who experience buildings as well as the architects. For a start, should we style, should we, should style strive for unity? No, unity applied across a group of buildings implies that their actual presence of a, the actual presence of a building plays no unique part in people's everyday life experience, but rather provides them with the same experience as all other buildings. And unity as a kind of organicism across all elements or parts of a single building restricts the, the architect's ability to engage the parts to simultaneously address distinct and separate concerns, which we talked about earlier, to engage the elements as vital forces for the project or as agents, style needs to account not for their unity, but for their multiplicity. In other words, for how the elements can be both formally equal and enmeshed with one another in a non-hierarchical way so that they can simultaneously address different concerns. We will look at that later. Should style represent authorship? No, today architectural ideas exist as an open source. The overzealous protection of architects' ideas as signature or autonomous domain inhibits the migration and circulation of ideas and the consequent development of new ones, rethinking what is now labeled as copying or imitation, as sharing from a common pool, as often done in the field of music, for example, will enable to detach style from be being fixed to an author and think of it as an open source, like a rhythm that has no beginning or end. It can be a um, appropriated by any architect and evolved, changed in different directions. We can observe a parallel discussion of freedom in the field of software development. The computer programmer and champion of software freedom, Richard Stallman, has proposed a series of freedoms fundamental to the development, to its development. The freedom to run its program for any purpose. The freedom to study how the program works, change it. Um, so it does your computing as you wish the freedom to redistribute copies so you can help your neighbor, the freedom to distribute copies of your modified versions, giving the community a chance to benefit from your changes, 
Now, the notion of considering buildings as separate and independent occurrences that are the product of propriety, ideas generated in a vacuum is regressive. Architectural ideas, which together define what we can call the discipline of architecture, are the result of a network of shared uh, ideas and processes that incrementally progress as each architect adapts elements for new uses. Now, should style represent nationality? No, because in today's world of free trade, increased mobility of capital, the rise of uh, transnational corporations, and the increased mobility of designers, technology, materials, strict boundaries between nations have been eroded, like the style of the modern bicycle, which has evolved in the hands of different nations over time. We need to approach style of buildings through the idea of singularity, that any style can be adopted by any nation and changed. Should style represent a period of time? No, because time is not divided into periods where everything is fixed or frozen. Today, as I mentioned earlier, buildings are subject to different external and often conflictual processes. That means that they evolve through different, separate, and concurrent lines of development that unfolds at different speeds uh, throughout the design process, which can take anything between one to six years, maybe longer. Now, enhanced levels of security may require imminent changes to the entry sequence of a building early in the design process, whereas new environmental regulations may necessitate changes to the envelope design midway through the process. The election of a new mayor every four years may imply changes in the space program, a budgetary change, or even the building location. The organicist model in which every element or part is expected to obediently serve the whole in a vacuum is clearly out. Like the M16 rifle, the challenge for an article uh, for an architect today is to conceive of buildings not as a unified whole, but as a confederation of elements, which we can call an assemblage or a manifold, with a particular kind of arrangement or grouping that introduces an effectivity proper to them um, without restricting the independence of parts so that they can be changed during the design process. This not only allows the, uh, the architect to react to unforeseen changes, but also to introduce new insights of their own. Now, having discarded the limiting representational narratives that historically define style, what remains for the architect in generating people's experience of buildings is their raw presence, or thisness, which their diverse elements with their colors, textures, shapes, and forms together define. Uh, these may seem limitations indeed. But in fact, for the architect, they hold a secret to a new way of working, in which the ever-increasing number of elements that buildings are divided into can be assembled without the restrictions or constraints of representation. In this new way of working, rather than combining the building's elements or parts into a unified whole, the architect can give them different internal discipline, so that their combined assemblage can generate a coherent but complex whole. Each assemblage then gives a specific propensity to the building individual elements, which manifests itself as a cluster of affects. Affects, just to define it, uh, uh, as used in the philosophy of Spinoza and elaborated by Bergson and Deleuze and Guattari, are intensities that are emitted or transmitted directly uh, by buildings. These could be lowness, transparency, openness, untouchability. Now, these are pre-individual, since they are just uh, emitted by the building, even uh, in the absence of the individual, and therefore they are 
pre-language, they are polysemic, we could say, and therefore they allow for different kinds of interactions with the same kind of affects of a building. Now here is a cineplex in Leicester by my previous practice, FOA. Uh, its cluster of affects of reflectivity, glare, and deformation um, are transmitted by its mirror stainless steel cladding. Um, it means that rather than ignoring the cineplex, uh, as is often the case with such inward-looking buildings, at a couple of points around the building, passers-by stop systematically and salute the building. <laughs> no matter what sex or age, um, there is no reason why sh people should respect this building. Uh, this was certainly not part of our brief uh, from our client, nor was it our, the cu a cultural response we hoped to evoke. Rather like the handrails which both stop people falling into the Guggenheim atrium and provide people with the possibility to pause while they encounter the art, or the walls which both shield the Smithsonian galleries from the elements and free people from the protective separateness which usually characterizes their gallery encounter. The envelope of the cineplex is a consequence of the practical demands for dark interiors as well as the desire by the architects to generate affects that would disrupt people's habitual encounter with such a building in the city. What is going on here cannot be reduced to either the agency of the object, the building, or, pass or the passers-by's subjectivities. It is produced by them through their encounter. The traditional representational approach to style assumes that there is a direct road between looking at the building and the fact of understanding, which we know doesn't exist. The aesthetic experience or encounter between people and buildings is a co-production. That is, when different um, people with unique subject positions um, would come into contact with a building, they encounter some or all of its affects, which result um, from how its different elements are assembled. For example, a residential building may transmit affects of flexibility, transparency, and differentiation inside, and scalelessness and privacy outside. Some people may choose to experience the building partially as a passerby, and others may choose to live in it and encounter all of its affects. Through these encounters, they construct their own unique subject um, experience-based knowledge of the world. Therefore, we can define style now in the following way. Style is the agency given to the elements of a building through their specific arrangement. It manifests itself as a cluster of affects that spreads out from the building and influences the kind of assemblage individuals will actively form with it, with the building, as they take part in their everyday activities, such as residing, working, uh, without limiting their freedom to react to it in different ways. However, if an activity is repeated in the same way over and over again, people can become habituated to certain ways of performing that activity as if there is no other choice in the matter. Consider the interior of a cinema uh, when a certain way of arranging one of its elements, say its seats, uh, is repeated over and over again, a convention emerges. The activity of watching movies in the way this seating arrangement dictates acquires a naturalness so that people to be begin to watch movies in this way unthinkingly. Whereas if the convention of seating arrangement is changed or shifted, then the arrangement of um, its elements or style of cinema no longer conforms to people's expectations. And even if it is just for a brief moment, a sense of possibility or freedom is opened up. But the shift I am referring to is not like the avant-garde strategies of estrangement 
which would aim at subverting in some way or disturbing the relationship between people and the cinema by creating a distance between them and the habits which constrain them. The shift of convention I'm referring to here requires that the architect uses his or her creative freedom to appropriate the cinema conventions rather than negating them and to decompose and recompose and change them <coughs> to create new affects that lead to a new state of awareness about the cinema. The style of buildings in this way becomes a force for innovation at this scale of the everyday. Here is the Yokohama Port Terminal, a project that we as the architects um, shifted a number of conventions that influence how people typically engage with the ferry terminal instead of a conventional or dominant way of arranging a terminal around a linear circulation system that, is, that aims to move passengers as quickly as possible between the entrance to the, to the, to the gates, um, which reduces the experience of people to a thoroughfare or of the terminal. We designed it with a looped circulation system through bifurcating floors of the terminal, which seamlessly connect people to levels above and below to free them from the habit of passively passing through it so that they might choose it as a place to sit down and paint. Therefore, by shifting the conventions associated with the building for traveling, we generated a new presence or style for a ferry terminal that loosens the building's relationship with traveling and allows people the freedom to creatively respond to it. Now, the philosopher Jacques Rancière argues that the significance of aesthetics lies in the fact that what can be apprehended by the senses determines possibilities for participation of individuals in daily life. For Rancière, politics is a disruption or a dissensus in conventionally perceived or prescribed spaces to make that which did not possess grounds to be seen, seen, so that active participation or encounters replaces passive participation. We could then say that by making the conventions of how everyday life activities are arranged on familiar, architects open up the possibility for, the, for new ways, for, for bodies of individuals to fit those everyday activities, and in doing so, ground style in the micropolitics of everyday life. Now, the efficacy of the architect is not about telling people the right or the wrong way to use a terminal or to watch movies or to live in houses or to work in offices. It doesn't have definitive outcomes. It resides in creating a dissensus in how buildings are conventionally perceived to generate the kind of differences in buildings that call for a response or an active participation from the people who use them. Now, to, ad to adopt this style, um, uh, this approach to style, it is necessary that we address it obviously not as a representation but as a performance. So what is, uh, the next question is, what is the effect of this approach to style on the process of design? Now, I thought I would share with you uh, a number of very different projects. Um, uh, to begin with, a block of flats, and then um, a, a museum, uh, then a shop, uh, and then an office building uh, to just um, go through different scales of, of let's say, uh, thinking about uh, this approach to style, to function, to freedom, all, all that we've been talking about. So let and, and to really show that it, it has nothing to do with the scale or with the budget or with its location, uh, it is a space that architects uh, um, own, if you like, a, a space of freedom, a space of choices within uh, the practice of architecture that, that can be activated anytime, 
anywhere. So to begin with, this is a residential complex that we are designing for the city of Montpellier in France, where we have focused its style um, or the arrangement of its elements uh, to shift it away from this, we could say, claustrophobic effect of uh, um, stacking and uh, slotting into a uniform um, form in order to provide the residents with a sense of agency and ownership over their, their space. Now, in a multi-story residential building, the core is the agent that determines the privacy or intrusion people experience on their way to their apartments, flats, as a consequence of its location and layout. The floor plates, owing to their size and shape, are the agent determining the size and number of units on any one floor, the number of orientations that these units would have, and therefore whether residents experience natural ventilation or stuffiness. The location of the service rises, together with the core and load-bearing structure, is the agent, determining the level of flexibility or inflexibility residents experience over time as the need to reconfigure their apartment arises. And the relationship between the floor plate, the envelope, and the handrail is the agent determining the privacy or exposure residents experience on their balconies. So you can see that to simultaneously assume these different agencies, the building elements cannot be governed by a single unifying formal idea. They must be considered as formally equal and designed or assembled um, so that each element by virtue of its location and grouping sometimes with other elements generates an emergent property, an affect, that provides people with a new way of experiencing those elements of the residential building in new ways. In our project, the structure, core, and services um, form one group of elements. Floor plates and envelope form another group of elements, and the floor plates and the handrails form another group of elements, and here is how the group performs. The core and services, um, service rises are located centrally um, with walls along the perimeter envelope um, as structure of the building, the load-bearing structure. Therefore, the interior is free of any fixed elements and transmits flexibility over time. The structural walls and em envelopes are inset um, to generate balconies uh, surrounding um, the, the, the building and the remainder of the floor plate, uh, since it is quite small, uh, with the central core can be subdivided into four units that are all corner units and therefore um, have cross ventilation. Since these outdoor spaces would abut each other, um, it would be usual for dividing screens to be introduced inside the balconies. And since dividing screens limit views um, out laterally, the shape might be changed from um, um, straight to curved, as in the Marino Tower and, and, uh, and the Aqua Tower, both in Chicago, which rectifies the problem of blocked views uh, since these outdoor spaces, um, but since these outdoor spaces also uh, look at each other laterally, views onto each other or opened up compromising privacy, whether the building is arranged linearly uh, or uh, around a circular plan. And as well, uh, privacy is compromised from above since the balconies are simply stacked on top of each other. You can see your neighbors below. A discordance can also exist between the interior layout and the exterior balcony or private outdoor space either because the balconies are identical in size, despite the fact that actually the interior units are the same size, and therefore you end up having to introduce the dividing screen again, or because the balcony is curved, whereas the interior is rectilinear. 
Now, given that Montpellier has great weather all year, and therefore the balconies would be intensely used, we chose to focus our agency on shifting uh, this convention of outdoor spaces that lack privacy. Firstly, the typical floor plate is pinched in the middle um, so that we would avoid the dividing screen. Then the floor plate uh, is made curvilinear so that the balconies could uh, flow more easily around the corner. Uh, the floor plates are then rotated um, relative uh, to the envelope, external envelope, so that it is no longer possible to look at your neighboring balcony. As you see by these blue arrows, it's impossible to see your neighbor. Um, and as really you see in this image, in order to reduce the overlooking down uh, vertically, the position of the balconies are shifted from one floor to another. This generates floor plates that are not identical to each other and transmit effects of not only privacy, but also diversity and multi-directionality as, as the balconies have different orientations for the different flats that are inside the building. It also doubles the vertical distance between the balconies so that the overlooking that conventionally uh, occurs when balconies are simply stacked, as you see here, is minimized, as the balcony below is always two floors down. To minimize views down even further, the handrail is mobilized as an activating or as an active agent relative to the balconies uh, that are visible two floors down uh, by giving the handrail supports a gradient uh, to make them denser where more privacy is required. So as you see there, uh, it's denser, a condition that is found along all of these red lines on the plan. So some of the handrails need to have a gradient uh, of, uh, of uh, supports, let's say. This assemblage of floor plates, envelope, and handrails generates two types of private balconies, a single-height balcony with an exterior curtain for additional privacy and a double-height balcony um, that is found in different orientations along the height of the building due to the orientation of the to the change of orientation of the balconies. So residents have many options of outdoor space based on their size, shape, type of view, and sun exposure. And therefore, we could now say that approaching the building in this way as an assemblage provides its style with different agencies, the agency to shift people's experience of their interiors from interior-exterior discordance to interior-exterior concordance, promoting indoor-outdoor living, uh, it also promotes cross-ventilation and the agency to shift people's experience of their balconies from exposure and homogeneity to uh, extreme privacy and diversity. Now, um, I have to kind of add, perhaps at the, at the end of the process, that it is needless to say that uh, the, the project, by finding these choices and, let's say, areas of freedom, uh, has to comply with, uh, you know, building regulations, planning uh, regulations in France, just like you would do here, uh, economic, let's say, constraints, or you could say limits. Um, but um, it is clear, or we've, we, we, we've discovered that despite all of those constraints, that there is much choice uh, for the architect, and we've tried uh, to, to claim um, and, and select, I should say, some of those options and choices in order to really shift uh, what it would be like to live in a communal residential building. Now, the building isn't finished yet, so it is impossible to know uh, what impact these affects that we gave this building 
um, uh, would have on the people who would live in them, but it is inevitable there, that their encounter with a new kind of balcony, one that is extremely private, will prompt creative responses from the residents. Now, the style of museums can too call for active participation from the people who use them, whereas terminal buildings we discussed are conventionally prioritized, you know, this direct circulation uh, with residential buildings, we focus on privacy. Um, contemporary art museums are normally arranged or designed to transmit flexibility in their galleries, um, the, the ones as they have no collecting collection, um, and they have to rotate shows. And on the outside, a, a kind of an affect of monumentality. Now, the white cube gallery has become, because of its whiteness and separation from the outside, has become the role model, let's say, um, for galleries uh, in terms of the flexibility that it produces, um, extreme flexibility. However, by being self-contained and separated from daily life, it also transmits neutrality, atemporality, and acontextuality. And as the museum exterior is disconnected from the experience of the galleries and seeing art, um, the exterior does its own thing, um, prompting critics to argue for the style of the museum through external narratives such as sales, spinnakers, rather than any agency it might otherwise carry vis-a-vis -vis going to see art. Um, meanwhile, the rest of the museum, since the galleries are, are confined and sealed away, is devoid of any art. And we wanted to shift the convention of this type of museum that we have arrived at, a decorated shed uh, that represents um, you know, an external narratives outside and provides a neutral white cube inside. However, we have tried also to uh, investigate the possibility of exploring the building not as a unified whole, but as an assemblage that can um, target different kinds of uh, agencies within the building. Um, the envelope and the main stair are the primary agents, but these in themselves are made out of smaller age, uh, elements, or we could call them small agencies, this is what Darwin would say. The small elements of the envelope include its shape, its rain screen cladding, its fireproof paint, its structure, and its windows. Its shape generated through a compact hexagonal entry floor rising to a rectangular roof allowed us to locate the building on the corner of its triangular sites, leaving space for a museum, in, uh, for a plaza in front, into which mu uh, museum events could spill out in good weather. Now, this shape, which is the second best fit after a circle to fit the corner, also provided us with the possibility of having five entrances on, on the different sides of the building, so that it could be subdivided into distinct areas that can be accessed separately, having different shows that have their own access directly from the street. Therefore, not all of the interior, um, therefore all of the interior, not just the gallery, is embedded with the freedom to be configured in different ways over time. At times it can be used for, for events, and at other times it can have simultaneous exhibitions, such as an, a space on the entry floor facing the plaza outside that is designed with movable shelves, um, so that during the day it can be the museum store, and at night it converts to a performance art space. The envelope's shape is also designed to act together with its construction layers to vary um, the aesthetic presence of the museum uh, on the exterior over time and transmit, uh, therefore, an affect of temporality rather than monumentality. 
Its exterior vented screen layer is assembled with black mirror stainless steel strips that are pressed in the middle um, and arranged diagonally across uh, the building's faces. This provides it with a specific phenomenal quality to be uh, simultaneously absorptive and reflective. Uh, therefore, rather than being timeless and disconnected from daily life, it catches the light and reflections of the physical context and uh, the changing re human relations around the building and generates different unexpected affects. Close up, the cladding strips transmit affect of delay, refraction, compression, refiguration, displacement, light, and transience. Now further away, the rain screen in combination with the envelope shape transmits different affects, other affects, depending on the point of view from which you would view it from. Solidity and blackness sometimes, and from other points, hollowness, tenting, as if the building faces are a house of cards resting on another, ambiguity because of the fact that the, the, the faces are catching the light differently and it's not quite clear where the form uh, ends sometimes. And now I have been told it looks like a crystal, but actually its agency, I think, lies not in representing anything external uh, to itself, but in appearing dialogic uh, rather than being detached from its context. Now inside, the structural steel decking is another small element of the envelope uh, that we have activated it, its agency of. It is exposed and painted in blue fire-resistant paint. Now the decision to expose the decking was initially to save cost, but then we realized that it had a powerful aesthetic role for the museum too, that instead of a narrative, the tension between the affect blue on the inside and black on the outside would produce a dissensus of the conventional decorated shed where visitors move between an exterior and an interior that are totally separated, disconnected from one another. Now at MOCA, since both the black rain screen exterior and blue structural decking on the inside follow the same shape, which um, visitors experience as they move into the museum, um, they experience this surface tension and therefore this, um, this feeling of incoherence bet between the two uh, does not exist. Now, the blue fire-resistant paint also um, has, carries other functions. Uh, it wraps around all, uh, all of the spaces of the museum, reinforcing curatorial continuity between art and non-art spaces uh, in section. When it wraps around the main gallery, it subverts the neutrality of the white cube gallery that floats where art floats and has no weight. Uh, the contrast um, in MOCA between the dark blue ceiling that is achieved over the main gallery and the light walls generates an inversion of the gallery interior as if it is um, um, exterior. Um, and the sky transmits an affect of, uh, as the ceiling uh, transmits an sky-like affect of boundlessness. Now the space below, um, due to its contrasting brightness to the ceiling, obviously has weight, uh, and, and that's where, of course, the art is. Um, when there is no natural light uh, entering the, the, the interior, the dark blue ceiling over the main galleries generates the illusion that the inside is outside and the weight is on, on the art. Um, here are portraits of the main uh, public on the very first uh, day of uh, opening day of the museum. I think a strong feeling comes across of a kind of an enhanced engagement with the art. Uh, and I would say that uh, there is no reason to worry that people are distracted because they are not 
in a white cube. They are certainly uh, focusing on the art. Now, the walls of the gallery are, of course, temporary, and the museum uh, shifts them. Um, sometimes they, they use it to block natural light from the sides, where the sense of boundlessness of the, of the ceiling is more active and, and space is more passive. But at other times, when the arrangement of the walls changes and they reveal the perimeter blue walls and light coming in, natural light flows in and space becomes more active, engaging with the arts, obviously in discussion with the artist. Uh, finally, Mocha's windows are another small agent of, its, uh, of envelope that we've, uh, we've tried to work with. They are arranged as long strips, uh, as, as you see here, irrespective of the location of the floors. Um, the, um, the floors are concealed by having mirror spandrels uh, behind so that they are not visible except at night. Um, and these are following the, the, the rain screen cladding uh, so that uh, they obviously assume also a diagonal orientation. The two together transmit an affect of movement and scalelessness. Uh, on the inside, the windows uh, are mobilized to disrupt a, a kind of an assumed incommensurability between the gallery interior and the exterior, which is often uh, celebrated by carefully framed windows here. There is the gallery and there is the exterior. At MoCA, the window reveals are clad in mirror, stainless steel, to displace the depth of the gallery with lateral views of the exterior. This reveals new relationships throughout the day uh, that do not exist in reality, uh, for, um, that uh, uh, spring a kind of new thoughts um, to, to the visitors. What if a new Frank Gehry, so this is, this is frontal and this is your lateral, um, um, the lateral space um, projected on the window reveal. What if a new, gallery, uh, a new Frank Gehry building is facing Mocha? That's where it is. Uh, it would be better than the existing car park that is actually in front. Uh, what if pedestrian crossings are planned to cross diagonally across the junction of Mayfield and Euclid, uh, the two crossing uh, the junction? Uh, they do this in Tokyo, uh, and it saves time to cross the junction. So you can kind of speculate with these images. The mirror reveals are therefore a kind of an act uh, where the inside and the outside um, uh, become uh, intertwined uh, rather than representing them as two separate uh, domains or realities. Uh, they, um, they generate a new kind of reality together and, and transmit this kind of affect of temporality. The stair is another agent um, uh, which uh, shifts the conventional museum stair, which um, gives um, access to, to the floors, different floors in a linear way, as we see here. Um, now, what appears to be a single staircase is, in fact, a double-decker staircase. Uh, we have stacked one of the egress stairs, um, fire stairs, on top of the main museum stair, initially to save space, but then uh, discovered that it would give us the potential to give visitors 10 open and closed routes to climb the museum. Uh, this is actually not a view you would ever see uh, because it's so tightly uh, nested inside this uh, tight atrium that climbs up. Um, now, the enclosed stair, which is, which is this yellow uh, uh, route that you see here, is also designed to be a sound gallery, shifting the idea that an egress stair, a fire stair, is only used in the case of emergencies. It is painted yellow to dematerialize the sense of space and to focus the attention on sound. Um, it, the upper route, which sits on top of it, 
is designed with its cascading and, and leaning to follow the profile of the building. It is designed with wide landings to act both as a social space as well as showing up, as well as a performance art space. Now, the stair is also extended above the top floor gallery uh, to enable visitors to look inside the museum where the gallery is shot because a, a new exhibition is being set up. So the arrangement of the stair confronts, you could say, uh, the user and prompts them uh, to choose whether they react or um, they, whether they interact with the gallery outside of the confines of the typical white cube. Um, and they see the production of uh, upcoming exhibitions as a facet of the artistic process or simply uh, go to the lower floor and, um, and see or view one of the lower exhibitions. So we can conclude that Mocha's elements, its stair, its envelope, its rain screen cladding, interior fireproofing, engage it, um, the, the museum, in the micropolitics of going to see art. Now... <laughs> I can assure you that as we were working uh, on MOCA, uh, there were many, many constraints uh, that these options that I'm showing you had to be, again, found during the process. Uh, for example, the, the building took six years because um, for two years we had to stop because we hit or we experienced the 2008 uh, uh, world uh, financial um, crash. Um, uh, and therefore, that that was a stall um, that had, you know, uh, implications on the on the size of the building, on the budget of the building. Um, the um, constraints don't always uh, necessarily affect the building in a negative way. For example, I remember that in one of the uh, presentations that I had to make to the to 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 one of the potential donors for the building, because the funding for the building had to be raised. This is not a public uh, museum. Um, one of the main members of the board didn't like the um, initial idea that we had for the external envelope. We had proposed to uh, use gold anodized aluminium. Um, and had she not reacted negatively to it, we would never have arrived at the black mirror stainless steel that is absolutely essential to what the building is now. Uh, I remember another time when uh, I went to, to visit, to inspect um, the mock-up of the external envelope and suddenly noticed that there was a, a kind of an indentation or a warp in one of the strips. Um, it was accidental. It was actually Zainer, who is an extremely good, uh, one of the best, if not the best, uh, um, um, uh, facade uh, contractors in, in America, uh, were apologizing to me because they, fe they felt this was an imperfection because they thought they had to make it absolutely flat. And then I said, no, 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 can you do more of this? And of course, the exterior is full of this game of, of, uh, of producing this oil can uh, effect and uh, producing refractions of what gets reflected on the skin. So uh, the process is dynamic, it's full of surprises. Sometimes you feel a tension because you want to hold on to what you have at the time. But my experience so far is that buildings actually become richer over time. Um, this is now a much smaller project. We can look at the Victoria Beckham flagship store just around the corner where we were asked to design uh, the store on three floors of an existing building. Uh, I think it exemplifies um, the agency of affects on a smaller scale. 
like most brands, Victoria Beckham has an online shopping platform. Uh, so this project raised the question uh, for us of how would its style or the arrangement of its shop fronts, ceilings, stairs, and display systems uh, generate a site-specific shopping experience and endow um, the user with the agency with agency in a setting which has such a specific goal or purpose. Now the shop front is usually arranged at a display space, uh, separate from the interior, which as in a market focuses on transmitting choices and display systems that transmit permanence uh, and predictability over time. To shift customers' experiences away from these conventions, we again uh, focus on how we would find a kind of a new way, an assemblage that would bring them together while allowing each one of them to have different kinds of agencies, provide different unique experiential moments um, in space and time. Now, the shop front is designed as a window, all in glass except a part, which is a concrete uh, sash window with no merchandise on display, uh, so that uh, the shop front would function with the space inside and activate the sense of the store from the exterior more like a gallery rather than a shop. Uh, when customers approach the shop front, they are presented with the surprise that the concrete window is in fact a sliding door that uh, rather than vertically going up and down, it slides to one side. The accessory wall um, just behind the shop front is designed to change the perception of this space over time. Its long shelves are designed to be retractable so that the store can vary the amount of shelves and handbags on display over time, or in fact completely remove them to allow the space to become used for events. Now the ceiling is clad in mirror um, stainless steel so that it would draw attention, um, uh, the, the customer's attention to the top of handbags, which are often the most interesting, um, as you see here, and to create a virtual double of the space. People are engaged in a process of working out exactly where the ceiling is, uh, how tall is this space in reality. Therefore, the ceiling expands their awareness of their surrounding, I would say. Two staircases connect the entry floor to the levels above and below. Um, this, um, the opening over the stair is um, made smaller than the actual stair, uh, generating a partial ceiling over the stair, which since it is also clad in mirror, it uh, shows everything upside down and creates uneven headroom in this kind of white uh, stair. Uh, subverting uh, or questioning the idea that the stair is just uh, a practical, it is indeed a room of its own in which accessories and handbags as well as different artworks are displayed over time. Um, the ceiling of the upper floor, you see just here on the right, um, is designed in a lightweight concrete covered ceiling. Here we can see uh, the process of appropriation um, uh, of, a, of, a, of a ceiling that is, that is used conventionally in a modern art gallery, uh, shifted to, to function in a retail space while providing these effects of the art gallery. It engages customers in a sense of upward expansion because the heavy ceiling is at the top. Um, and it conceals the mechanical and electrical systems, but it also shifts the usual displays that are fixed to the floor and um, uh, a kind of emit a sense of permanence. In our case, um, the, the clothing are hung from a system of chains that can be moved to different locations, just like movable walls in a gallery, 
or entirely removed again to turn the space, convert it into an event space. Uh, the alliance made between the, hang the hanging system and the ceiling has other um, implications in the shopping experience too. Uh, typically, customers must, must use two handbags um, to view the clothing, abandoning their handbags on the floor, which soon becomes a kind of an awkward situation. Um, the chain system allows customers to rotate the clothing 360 degrees with one hand while they hold on to their handbag. It transmits playfulness, challenging the convention of the shop as simply a marketplace. Now, to further um, make the perception of, or of, of and the experience of shopping site-specific, the counters for clothing are made uh, in mirror stainless steel so that they would be experienced in a kind of an immersive way as part of their experience rather than as objects that float uh, on the floor. Consequently, the experience of shopping for small accessories and, and knitwear it becomes inseparable from, from the actual space that surrounds them. Now, to further liberate um, the customers from predictability, the seating in the store, um, which are these benches, are designed as a system of um, well, triangular shapes, uh, shaped uh, benches that can be combined in different ways, move, moved around uh, in the store so that they would be encountered in different places and different sizes, different shapes over different visits to the store. Uh, so when you come to the store, something that you may have taken for granted, the usual displays and the focus on choice of merchandise starts to lose ground. Um, you have to find how you have to behave in the shop and how you have to uh, use it. Um, now, uh, let's look at an office building. Uh, this is uh, 130 Fenchurch Street. It is a 17-story office uh, tower, mid-rise tower that we are working on, located in the eastern cluster of the city here. Um, I'm presenting you tonight only the external, um, let's say, envelope or the exterior as uh, this is what the, the rest of the process is ongoing and uh, not ready to present it to, to you. Um, this is the part that usually um, uh, an architect starts having to work on uh, on such a building because of the requirement of having to apply for planning, uh, planning permission. Now, as you know, the eastern cluster uh, of the tall buildings in the city is an area that fosters urban synergy. You could say knowledge spillover between financial trading firms um, formally and informally. So this means that the public realm in, in between the buildings is actually intensely used as traders move between headquarters. So what the buildings looks like and how it is experienced outside is actually as important as, uh, as how the building functions as a workplace. Uh, now this raised the question for us, this following question, how should the building articulate its presence as an object of encounter for passers-by for whom the practical functions of the interior is not of concern. So representing the function inside is not of their concern. Uh, most mid-rise buildings uh, in the area have a stepped massing to disguise their scale from the street level. As you see, they're very big buildings, but they, they, they step to make themselves look smaller. But there is no need to disguise the massing of the building. Um, Fenchurch Street is a continuously bending street, which means that the building would only be seen when you get very close to it and only partially. So our massing strategy is pure extrusion. So the element that will have agency in shaping people's encounter with the building is actually its curtain wall. Conventionally, curtain walls are assembled independent of the load-bearing structure in order to appear light and transparent. 
Yet they are never fully transparent, except perhaps at night, because curtain walls, as you see here, include horizontal and vertical caps or mullions, silicone joints and expansion joints, as well as different shading devices, um, which appear darker than the glass, and therefore a kind of grid appears uh, that transmits, we could say, an affect of efficiency, which belongs more to the tailor's days of, uh, than, than today's workplace. Now, during the day, the glass curtain wall typically is reflective, which is meant to integrate the presence of the building into its context by mirroring it. But instead, it generates a sense of anonymity and disappearance in the building. Now, we wanted to shift the presence of 130 Fenchurch Street um, from these conventions of transmitting efficiency, anonymity, and disappearance, uh, which are not desirable for today's uh, workplace or work environment to ensure the agency of the user and the passerby, we designed a curtain wall that would promote interaction and engagement. Now, rather than assembling the curtain wall with flat pieces of glass, it is uh, to be assembled with concave ones that are varied in scale to accommodate the irregularities of the footprint. As you see, the site footprint is irregular, but also to generate a variety in people's experience as they move around the building. Uh, the glass um, panels are designed to be assembled together with a structurally glass uh, reveal rather than frames, replacing the conventional frames, appearance of frames with the, with a shadow. Uh, instead of simply mirroring uh, its context, the fluted curtain wall that would uh, uh, generate will compress reflections of the context in each of its flutes or segments, and new images would emerge in order to simplify the color and tonal range of the reflections into a subtle gradation of tones, the glass will be, will be frit in, uh, to appear in black, uh, similar to how black glass was used by painters in the 18th and the 19th century to turn from geometric to physiological optics. The black frit will not only reduce the tonality of reflections uh, on the glass and the reflective qualities uh, of it, uh, it will also ab absorb the dark shadow reveals. It appears extremely black on this projector, uh, turning the repeated Im images into a continuity. The lighter, the tighter the fluting, the finer will be the grainy image that will result. The variation of the curtain wall, as, as well as the simplicity of extruded um, a shape, will therefore be at odds with its step neighbors uh, or sculptural high-rises that are nearby and it will engage passers-by to explore all of its sides as uh, people pass through around the building, while its serrated top uh, will distinguish the building against the sky and, and hopefully focus uh, people's attention um, upwards, unlike a conventional glass curtain wall that almost disappears against the sky. Now, the cluster of affects of presence and multiplicity, verticality and fluting, serration and fluidity will be very different to affects of stepping, stacking, flatness, absence, uniformity experienced in the buildings nearby. Now, this affective break will hopefully surprise people and invite them to make sense of the building. On the interior, the structural frame of a mid-rise tower is conventionally designed at nine meters uh, span. At this span, the columns are very large, which is a challenge for, and they are also a challenge for our, uh, office partitioning to, to to meet them. Uh, instead, we have designed the structural columns at three meter spacing. At this uh, spacing, the columns are substantially smaller. They fit, in fact, within the depth of the curvature of each one of the glass segments, uh, make it much easier for, uh, for, for partitioning if required. 
an outside as a result instead of the typical large columns um, at nine meter span, um, the presence of smaller vertical structure almost disappears behind the shadow reveals uh, of, the, of the structural reveals in between the glass segments. Um, along the street views, uh, this is a plan, a partial plan, the depth of the columns will partially interrupt views in. Now the center of each class that is marked in red are the areas where there will be clear views on all these oblique uh, approaching views. Uh, and with this in mind, um, with this observation, the black frit will be graduated from being very dense at the edges. This is half of one of the glass segments being very dense at the edges to total transparency in the center. Um, from the interior views out, uh, the black color of the frit has the advantage that physiologically your eye will focus on the dark colors and see uh, on the light colors and see straight through um, when viewing to the outside. On the exterior, the dense frit, on the other hand, um, will create these uh, dark vertical shadows in each uh, glass uh, panel or flute a transmitting verticality, and in contrast, uh, the contrast between these this black dark shadows uh, and, and the floor behind means that actually the presence of the floors will be suppressed, uh, and as a result, the, the tower also gains uh, an effect of scalelessness. By the day, the space between the passersby and the curtain wall uh, will therefore be constantly active. The passersby will I will be constantly drawn uh, to search across the, the surface of the curtain wall um, to find a source for its uh, dramatic uh, vertiginous effect to discover that, in fact, there is nowhere for it to rest on. Uh, and it is through this process of assembling the different elements that, that, that are comprised in a curtain wall without any attempt at communicating the function of the inside or any other external narratives that the actual perceptions of, of the passersby are engaged, uh, relieving them, liberating them, freeing them of having to understand what the interior is about. Now at night, the exterior presence of an office building uh, is defined by its ceiling, um, that the, the, where the curtain wall becomes, let's say, absent and the interior becomes visible. This is an area we are exploring. I have to tell you there is no guarantee we will, uh, we will achieve this, but Let's see. Here are office buildings nearby our site, which during the day are designed to be very distinct from each other. But at night, it is hard to tell from one from the other because they all use the same ceiling system. To shift the perception of the building at night away from this generic condition, we are exploring a linear baffle system uh, that will easily address the, the usual coefficients of lighting, accessibility, you could say acoustics that are required for a, a workplace, um, but to also create an illusion of pleating of this flat surface, we are exploring an uneven spacing to them so that the ceiling would transmit also rhythm and movement rather than flatness. Now, I think today, given the fact that we all work uh, very much uh, remotely, uh, we do want to go to our office and workspaces where we, the, the the attention and the focus and the kind of the physicality of the space is um, is, uh, is is reinforced. Now, from the exterior, looking up at the at the, at the at the ceilings at night, the conjunction between the horizontals of the floor slabs and the diagonals uh, that are revealed of the ceiling will produce an entirely different form um, that will disrupt 
the, the disappearance uh, and the anonymity of the ceilings of the neighboring buildings. Um, now, this we couldn't have it be predetermined. Uh, we couldn't have it uh, designed. We couldn't have known this ahead of time as a narrative of our previous projects that we like to just repeat. We had to find it during the process. And as I mentioned, the project is ongoing. Uh, but I think what is interesting uh, to see, perhaps, with this project is that what seems like a very limited beginning, a curved glazing profile, can in fact become a fertile ground for innovation. Now, so just to really finish, uh, let's now consider what the impact of this approach to style, function, freedom um, is if it becomes a, a shared uh, approach uh, between architects, not just our own work. I, I believe that this has been a shared approach in contemporary architecture. I mentioned earlier that architects find themselves in a world of shared ideas. Now, the style book brings together projects from two time frames, uh, from uh, early 20th century and also from the 1990s to the present. This is the period that I think we could speculate that this has been a, a shared approach towards style by a, a, a lot of architects. Um, now, to highlight their similarities, um, they are, uh, they, and, and at, at the same also to their differences, they are all drawn in gray scale in, in this manner. And this is because superficial differences that are not unimportant, but they are not to do with the arrangement uh, and configuration or the assemblage of these buildings are suppressed so that we look at their differences in terms of organization. Now, to also highlight that the style of these buildings are um, intimately bound with everyday life, questioning, engaging uh, with everyday life, uh, rather than with uh, representations of particular narratives, the projects are all grouped into um, everyday life activities such as um, that they would host, such as working, um, viewing exhibitions, uh, shopping, etc. Now, by identifying the differences between them, it becomes apparent uh, that sharing of ideas, I would say, uh, can be claimed, that these projects have claimed the sharing of ideas, have appropriated ideas from each other as a domain of freedom that is internal to the discipline. It is an open source, the discipline uh, for architects to use, not for copying each other or copying ideas, but for creating something new. Um, this involves appropriating conventions established by other projects, recent or distant, um, and shifting them. And we think, and I, I think that this we could call the census or making something new to appear, um, especially when it is when the differences are located in in, in everyday life activities. Uh, to use perhaps my own kind of uh, example, this is an FOA project. Um, the Carabanchel social housing. The left is a Mies van der Rohe um, housing uh, slab building, um, Weisenhof Siedelong. Um, now, they are both uh, very similar. They are both slab buildings. They use uh, many more cores inside the building that, than you would normally have in the building, A, to uh, get rid of, eliminate the, the long corridor that you normally find in a slab building. Every two building every two flats or apartments share a, a vertical core. Um, this not only gives flats extreme privacy, but it also makes all the units double aspect, and it gives, uh, obviously, great cross-ventilation, etc. But there are, these, are, these are shared between the two, but there are also significant differences. Now, on the left, you see that the, the, ba 
balconies are uh, not continuous along the slab. They are only punctually uh, uh, provided. They are very small and they are exposed. Uh, the glass uh, the, to the, the glazing to the, to, the, to the rooms are not all floor to ceiling. Only at the point of the balcony, it is floor to ceiling, not in the caravan shell um, uh, housing. The, the glazing is floor to ceiling throughout and the units uh, have an outdoor space or balcony along their entire length of apartment at both sides. Um, the uh, balconies are provided with a, with a layer of uh, bamboo shutters that, that are um, movable and therefore uh, residents can, can um, appropriate them, move them to, um, to change their degree of privacy or natural or darkness uh, to their units. Um, so as a consequence, um, this assemblage of, of, let's say, or, or assemblage, I would say, the, the external envelope, the, the balconies, and, and the relationship between also interior and exterior, uh, the two buildings ultimately have an entirely different affect. So I would say that uh, Caravanchel uh, transmits affects of variety, interior, interiority, exteriority, and outdoor privacy uh, here, whereas in perhaps the, the, the project that it appropriates, um, it transmits affects of uniformity, interiority, and exposure. So uh, we can see that despite the fact that perhaps these two projects do not reinvent uh, housing from scratch, um, they share a lot with each other, they innovate and introduce uh, quite a lot of new areas of freedom choice for the people who would live in it. So what I've tried really to do uh, tonight is to illustrate that uh, the design process brings much complexity, it is dynamic, it brings a lot of, com let's say, constraints, a lot of players. Um, the architect has to assemble a myriad of elements uh, that um, um, receives also quite a lot of input from uh, external collaborators. But in fact, despite of all this complexity, the architect's role, uh, I think, has remained uh, the same, which is to assemble all of these expertise, all of these elements, all of these forces together, and that's what I think style is, and that's why I think style is the area of freedom. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.